This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to the third movie in our month of journalism films with Network from 1976, directed by Sidney Lumet, written by Patty Chayevsky, and starring Faye Dunaway, Peter Finch, William Holden, and Ned Beatty. This movie was nominated for nine Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Director, Cinematography, and Film Editing, and all four acting categories, only the second time that it had been done after A Streetcar Named Desire did that in 1951 and has not been repeated since, including five acting nominations across the various acting categories for the Oscars. The screenplay was also recognized in 2005 by the Writers Guild of America as one of the 10 best screenplays ever produced. Can you name any of the other nine? We've covered several on the show. I'll give you that hint. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. No. We have a couple of Billy Wilder films from the 50s. Some like it hot. Correct. Uh... Sunset Boulevard? Correct. Also on the list, Casablanca, The Godfather, The Godfather Part 2, Chinatown, Citizen Kane, All About Eve, okay, and Annie Hall. Alright, so let's start here. I think one of the impressionable things that I take away from this film, I've now seen it I think three times, including this time for the show, but the first time I saw it, I was struck by almost how uncomedic it seems, unfunny, even though most critics at the time would call this a satire on the state of TV in the mid-70s. To me, this plays much more like a horror movie. Why? Well, and I know you're going to ask me my relationship to this movie. I saw this movie in 79 or 1980. And uh, at that time, I thought it was a comedy. But now I watch it and I go, hmm, wow, this is reality. This predicted where things were going to degenerate to. And if you watch the evening news or watch any of the 24-hour news channels, you see large aspects of this on a regular basis. So that's why. It's not funny because it's become true. Humor comes in and satire comes in as long as it's something poking fun of and taking it to the absurd level. Well, we've achieved that absurd level with most of our news because news is not news, it's entertainment. It's stranger than fiction. I'm sure The Simpsons putting on Donald Trump as president as a joke in the mid-90s, I think it was, would be seen as satire at the time because it was ridiculous to think a potential reality TV star, a media mogul of the 80s in New York, would somehow become this weird messianic figure that he is to a certain particular population in this country. And yet, it's reality. 
And when the extremes meet reality, you have horror, at least in my opinion. This is so on the nose, not just about the 70s or what was going on at the time, which I know that up and down, Lumet and Chayevsky both say that they were trying to strive toward. But this is so on the nose for the 80s, cable news, the modern media landscape, Twitter, that it's scary. (laughs) Yeah, because again, how many people, and I caught myself doing this quite a bit at times, instead of watching uh, a sitcom or a drama or a movie, I'm coming home and watching one of the 24-hour news channels and listening to a talking head discussing things from a particular point of view and making it more sensational and entertaining. There's a reason why a large portion of the public, what was it, seven, eight years ago, got most of their news from The Daily Show because Jon Stewart told enough news but did it in a comedic way that it was entertaining. And that's how people decided to digest their information. As opposed to that point in time, you're talking about the mid-70s where you were still, and correct me if I'm wrong on some of the history here, but there was still the semblance of the Cronkite days of the solo anchor being the person that broadcast into your home and would basically decipher what was going on in the world on a daily basis. As opposed to now, where you have podcasts, you have social media, you have your Uncle Charlie sending you articles off of the Drudge Report. Um, You know, everything and anything, it's an overload of information at your fingertips, constantly being fed to you by a media machine that is only out to make sure that you're constantly fixing your attention solely on them. It's 1968, and and I just saw this because it was contained within a, a movie that was released this year, or just recently, The Greatest Beer Run Ever, which I thought was a pretty good movie, and I'd recommend people watching it. But they talk about the Tet Offensive. In 1968, in the early part of the year, when the Tet Offensive occurred, afterwards, Walter Cronkite did something he had never done before. He stopped. He said, I'm going to do an editorial. So he made a difference as far as I'm not doing the news. I'm doing an editorial. And at that point, he talked about how America could not win the war because the Tet Offensive proved to him that this was an untenable war and that our ability to win had been compromised. In other words, he implied that basically the government had been lying to us as to the potential for success. It was at that point that Lyndon Johnson turned to, and I believe it was Bill Moyers, and said, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost the country. Okay, That's the level that news was and the reputation of the anchors in January of 1968. By 1976, the audience, during the period of time that the evening news was on, which would be 6.30 
Eastern, 5.30 Central, CBS had 28% of all of the TV audience watching their broadcast. NBC was 26%. ABC was 20%. According to a Forbes article in 2009, all three programs together did not reach the same 28% that CBS had in 1976. And in the last 13 years, that number has substantially dropped further. Nobody's watching the evening news for each of the three programs. And I think it's only a matter of time before the three networks, one of them just decides it's not worth having it. Well, by comparison, I think the only thing that's going to generate 28 million people across the country watching at the same time, or even a 28% share of the audience at, at any one particular time, is probably a playoff game for football. Well, and you have to understand that the times are different now because when I was a kid, we had basically three channels plus PBS, which did not have regular programming. We had ABC, CBS, and NBC. That's it. You watched what was on one of those three or you turned off the TV. And now we've gotten to the point where there's so much diversity within television and within entertainment that comes through the television that they have to do more to entice people to watch. Well, especially because they're competing with more screens than ever before. For example, most TV programs, the streamers, Netflix, just to be specific, is having to contend with the fact that more people are paying attention more often to TikTok than they are sitting through and binging an entire Netflix show. Yeah, I understand, and I, I get that point, because in a given day, I'll spend half an hour to an hour on TikTok watching videos. I'll spend 15 to 20 minutes, maybe a half an hour on YouTube, may get a little bit more on the weekends. I go to Netflix, Amazon, HBO Max, a few other channels, and if I'm really like just looking for something to veg out to, I found an app called Local. I'll just sit and watch old episodes of the Johnny Carson show from the 70s and 80s because I'm old enough that I remember a lot of that. And it's kind of nostalgia for me. So I'm listening to a lot of different stuff, watching a lot of stuff and consuming things in a very different manner than I would have 30 years ago. But I think everybody is, and that's the point, is, is that if the only thing that's important in an attention economy is having that fixed amount of time where people are paying attention to you, you have to do things that are going to catch the eye and keep them glued to you. That is your only focus because that is what is driving your profits. And that's the one thing I think this movie captures just to bring it back around is that attention was going to be important and was going to be outsized. And the other part of it was, and a thing that I really think this movie does a great job of exploring, negative emotion trumps positive emotion as far as virality. The things that go viral most often online are negative emotions, anger, tirades, rants, etc., 
and that is across the broad media landscape. Well, there's a reason why one of the more popular things is Lewis Black's rants. But those are meant to be comedic, and that's the thing on top of it. But yes, that's a fairly good example. So let me go in this slightly different but similar direction. Would Howard Beale be considered a conservative or a liberal in modern America? A conservative. Because right now, conservatives feel themselves being put upon by the liberals and the intellectuals and their woke agenda. A liberal would never be able to get the traction as to the level of anger that Howard had. We just aren't angry enough because we or the liberal groups seem to not have the same feelings of being put upon, uh, the perceived loss of power that the conservatives generally have right now, which is one of the reasons why we have such a dichotomy in this society. See, I see a guy that is actually very liberal and espousing some very liberal points of view. Yes, the anger may be more resembling what you're seeing spewed out at you from Fox News or Newsmax. Sure, Newsmax. But I think that the points he's making, up until the point where he's espousing the corporatist agenda by Mr. Jensen, is stuff that would be featured by most liberal groups of woke people. His tirade against the Saudis, his tirade against having your TV on and controlling your life. To me, these are things that he's fed up about in a fairly liberalized fashion. Things that I could very easily hear coming out of a 22-year-old TikTok influencer's video. Well, I disagree, and this is why. Because part of being a liberal in this country is being able to see the bigger picture sometimes. So I don't think liberals get as angry. And if you're talking about the Saudis and they're taking control, I think most liberals would have a broader interpretation of that, which is, well, they have a right to to buy in, other countries buy in, whatever. There's just not the same level of anger that arises from it, which is why I'll still remember this back in high school. My uh, history teacher at that time said, if the United States were ever to go out of democracy, which do you think would be the case? We'd either become fascist or become communist. And we made a debate and argued for an entire class. And then I asked him what his opinion was. He said, oh, this country will obviously be fascist because the liberals do not ever have the level of anger that conservatives who would tend to become more fascist and extreme would have. And that's what I see. And I think it's been 40 years since I've been in that class. And that's what I've seen for the last 40 years. Except I really don't think it has anything to do with holding on to the anger as much as it is being entertained by it. Otherwise, we wouldn't have programs like Bill Maher or Jon Stewart or John Oliver. I mean, all the offshoots of The Daily Show are proof that this concept could work, even though it's coming from comedians. 
maybe they're not espousing the same traditional anger where it's just simply a rant and he's the mad prophet of the airwaves, but it is something that they are espousing and trying to push back against what they see as a flawed system. Okay, I understand your point. I don't know. I, I my my guess is, is if you look at it, liberals tend to have shows or watch shows that are more comedic about these issues. Conservatives tend to have more serious shows where it's a particular individual espousing certain beliefs or concepts. I mean, the only one that was ever trying to be funny from a conservative point of view was Rush. Dennis Miller. Well, is he even relevant? Has he got a show yet? I don't think so, but I mean... Well, you just nominated a guy who's been famously dead for like two years. Well, and I'm just commenting because Rush had been around for a long time. I'm just giving another example. Yeah, I understand. But I have my own opinions as to Rush, which I taught my children. Yes, you very much did. The Antichrist, right? Yes, I remember that to this day. Being in the bookstore at Christmas and you were about, what, four or five and you pulled on my pant and go and pointed up because Russia's book was on the shelf. And you go, Dad, look, the Antichrist. <laughs> the couple in front of us turned around and looked and just busted out laughing because you were just so serious. Uh, yeah, I stand by that statement. Yeah. So what is this movie about? I, I think the movie is really about well, what the movie was about back when it was released, I think is different than what the movie is about now. This is a living movie. This is not something that you can compartmentalize into the time it was released. I think it's changed over time. I see this movie as being relevant 50 years from now. People looking at this and going, oh, if only it was that simple. Because I, I don't see anything changing Along that line, this is a movie right now, I would say, is where it's blurred the ideas of issues and substance with entertainment, making it the news being sexy so that people will consume it in such a way, being provocative and saying things in a way that is done to try to stir emotions beyond just simple, give me the facts, ma'am as Joe Friday would say on Dragnet. The lack of anyone reading a news source, watching an evening news program, shows more or less that people are more about entertainment than substantive issues. And I think it's worth noting that things have just become, have basically degenerated into the battle. We treat things not for what they are and the horror sometimes of certain events, but we become almost callous to certain events because we watch and consume them. For example, it took approximately three weeks for the news of Little Bighorn to reach Washington, D.C. In today's world, if there's a shooting that occurs someplace, it'll be on CNN within 15 minutes. So as a result, we've become more 
callous. So this movie is about that, which is the blurring of the difference between news and entertainment. While I very much take that into account and agree to a certain extent, I think that where this movie is the most biting is in its criticism of how TV has an outsized influence, at least in the mid-1970s. And you could probably change it to social media now, but how we've become all somewhat enslaved to our television screens. And I think there is no more clear representation of the television generation than Faye Dunaway's Diana. Every part of her life is scripted. Everything has to take place within the fantasy of what a potential script could be. And by extension, she becomes incapable of having true human relationships in reality. I would honestly say that you could go into any home in this country right now, and if you looked at it, you could perceive the television as being the altar of the home. It's certainly worshipped as such. It certainly becomes the centerpiece of any room that it's a part of. Every seat is facing in that direction like it's a pulpit. Yes. Now, the question becomes, if you change that to social media, regular dinner conversations among people. How many times have you not gone out to a restaurant and watched as everybody else around you is just sitting on their phone while they're at dinner with four other people? It happens in our family. I do my best to put my phone in my pocket and not take it out until I'm done being present with the people I came there to talk to, but very often that is a usual circumstance. And despite its best intentions of making the world more interconnected, I think it's actually done the opposite and made us more disconnected from each other. But that's a revolution that only happened as television had that same influence 40-some years ago, 50-some years ago, and continued to evolve as they figured out the only way to grow this pie, the only way to continue our profiteering is attention. And the more variety and the more choices and the more people that try and get into the game, you have to compete for eyeballs, ears, and attention spans, then we have to become more sensationalized. And to me, that's what this movie is about. I guess we're coming at it from different angles, which is I grew up in that era where TV became more embedded in our way of life. You've always had that. Much like most of my generation has always had the internet, too. Yes. I remember having that conversation about the internet back in 1992 with your mother. So let's give some more background on the movie. Do you have our plot summary ready for us? I do. Howard Beale, Peter Finch, the lead anchor at UBS, is fired when his ratings tank. Network executive Max Schumacher, William Holden, Howard's best friend, is forced to deliver the bad news. Beale cannot stomach the idea of his firing, so he announces to the viewers that he's going to commit suicide on his final program. The network head, Frank Hackett, Robert Duvall, finds out that UBS had its greatest ratings ever on the night of Beale's self-destruction, and program executive Diana Christensen 
Faye Dunaway, talks Hackett into reprogramming Bill's show. Bill becomes the hottest TV personality in America, and Diana becomes the network's fair-haired girl, drawing up plans to treat the nightly news broadcast as entertainment, built around the rants of Bill. However, when Bill steps on a corporate deal between the owners of UBS and the Saudis, all hell breaks loose, and Bill is caught in the crosshairs. Thank you. Cast for this movie, Sidney Lumet as director, Patty Chayevsky as screenwriter, Faye Dunaway as Diana Christensen, William Holden as Max Schumacher, Peter Finch as Howard Beale, Robert Duvall as Frank Hackett, Wesley Addy as Nelson Cheney, Ned Beatty as Arthur Jensen, Beatrice Strait as Louise Schumacher, Jordan Charney as Harry Hunter, William Prince as Edward Ruddy, Lane Smith as Robert McDonough, and Marlene Warfield as Lorraine Hobbs. Recognition for this movie, Network was released on November 27, 1976. On its release, Network received widespread critical acclaim with particular praise for the performances. It received nine Academy Award nominations at the 1977 Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Director for Sidney Lumet, Actor for William Holden, Supporting Actor for Ned Beatty, Cinematography and Film Editing, and Four Wins, Best Actor for Peter Finch, Best Actors for Faye Dunaway, Best Supporting Actress for Beatrice Strait, and Best Original Screenplay for Patty Chayefsky. Network currently holds a 92% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, an 83% on Metacritic, and a 4.2 out of 5 on Letterboxd. In 2000, the film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. In 2002, it was inducted into the Producers Guild of America Hall of Fame as a film that has set an enduring standard for American entertainment. In 2005, the Writers Guild of America voted Chayevsky's script one of the 10 greatest screenplays in the history of cinema. Network has been recognized by the AFI on the following lists. It was number 66 on AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies from 1998. It was nominated for AFI's 100 Years 100 Laughs. For AFI's 100 Years 100 Heroes and Villains, Diana Christensen was nominated as a villain. On AFI's 100 Years 100 Movie Quotes, at number 19, we have, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. And finally, at number 64 on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movies, 10th Anniversary Edition from 2007. Finally, screenwriter Aaron Sorkin wrote that, quote, no predictor of the future, not even Orwell, has ever been as right as Chayefsky when he wrote Network. The film ranks at number 100 in Empire Magazine's list of the 500 greatest films. Did you know? Director Sidney Lumet and screenwriter Patty Chayefsky claimed that the film was not meant to be a satire, but a reflection of what was really happening. Did you know? Sidney Lumet said that he shot the film using a specific lighting scheme. He said in the film's opening scenes he shot with as little light as possible, shooting the film almost like a documentary. As the film progressed, he added more light and more camera moves, and by the end of the film it was as brightly lit and slick as he could make it. The idea was to visually convey the theme of media manipulation. Did you know? Peter Finch was desperate to win the role of Howard Beale once he had read the script. He even offered to pay his own airfare to New York City for the screen test. But Sidney Lumet was concerned about Finch's Australian accent. 
Finch won the part after sending Lumet a recording of himself reading the New York Times with a perfect American accent. Did you know? Walter Cronkite and John Chancellor were approached for the role of Howard Beale, but neither was interested. Cronkite's daughter, Kathy Cronkite, agreed to play left-wing radical Marianne Gifford, a character loosely based on Patricia Hearst. According to John Eastman's 1989 book, Retakes Behind the Scenes of 500 Classic Movies, Peter Finch studied tapes of Chancellor in order to develop a TV bland accent. Did you know? Henry Fonda turned down the role of Howard Beale, saying that it was too hysterical. Glenn Ford and George C. Scott did also. James Stewart turned the film down because of the strong language. Although William Holden turned it down, he was cast in the other male lead and was nominated for Best Actor along with Peter Finch. Did you know? According to Sidney Lumet, the Mad as Hell speech was filmed in one and a half takes. Midway through the second take, Peter Finch abruptly stopped in exhaustion. Lumet was unaware of Finch's failing heart at the time, but in any case, he did not ask for a third take. The complete film features the second half of the first take and the first half of the second take. Did you know? Peter Finch died before the Academy Awards were to take place, where he was nominated for Best Actor. He won, making him the first performer ever to receive a posthumous award at the Oscars. The second winner was fellow Australian Heath Ledger for The Dark Knight in 2008. Did you know? Faye Dunaway would later say that this was the only film I ever did that you didn't touch the script because it was almost as if it were written in verse. She was as happy with Sidney Lumet as with the writing, describing him as one of, if not the most talented and professional men in the world. Did you know? Beatrice Strait is only on screen for five minutes and two seconds. Hers is the briefest performance to ever win an Oscar. Did you know? Ned Beatty once remarked that actors should never turn down work. Quote, I worked a day on network and got an Oscar nomination for it. Beatty is on screen for five minutes and 53 seconds. But the performance earned him a Best Supporting Actor Oscar nomination. Did you know? Sidney Lumet openly admitted that he was furious to have the picture lose to Rocky for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Did you know? The only music heard in the film comes from commercials and television show themes. Did you know? As of 2021, this is the last movie to receive five Academy Award nominations in the acting categories. And with that, we'll take our first break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we will be discussing the last in our journalism month with the Best Picture winner from 2015, Spotlight, written and directed by Tom McCarthy, co-written by Josh Singer, starring Michael Keaton, Liev Schreiber, Rachel McAdams, Mark Ruffalo, John Slattery, and Stanley Tucci. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. All right, Dad, best performance? Patty Chayefsky. Same. Yeah. I mean, the screenplay is just awesome. The monologues, which we'll get into as far as the quotes, are almost poetic. There's so many things that are said smartly and intelligently. The only thing I would say that's wrong with it is it's hard to believe people would be that smart instantaneously. That's why it's a work of art. And it is like verse that this is just written so well, it's almost hypnotic in its delivery. 
one of the few times that I've ever been upset that I wasn't able to get to something and see it live in a performance is Brian Cranston doing Howard Beale. Because as good as Peter Finch is, I just know Brian Cranston can deliver a performance that's bar none as doing Howard Beale. I mean, you could literally go in about eight different directions with best performance, best secondary performance, and most charismatic, and I couldn't really put up much of an argument. There are so many just great performances in this movie, but Chayevsky, to me, is the preeminent because it all starts with how he wrote it on the page. This is modern Shakespeare. You know, it, it dawned on me when you mentioned Brian Cranston that since certain plays are limited runs, why producers are not recording the last productions and selling them to streaming services. Because at some point in time, there's a lot of people that are not going to be able to get to New York to see things. And to have that availability would be a way of marketing a play and getting another stream of income outside of the theater itself. Because I would have loved to have seen that myself. I mean, even though this is clearly made for a movie, the ability to adapt it to a play, because the rest of the dialogue is so rich in material. When I say it's modern Shakespeare, this reads a lot like the monologues of Hamlet, just without the weird English prose. It wasn't weird when Shakespeare wrote them. Anyway, I just couldn't see a way around not going Chayevsky as the number one. So... If he's number one, who's number two? Finch. And that's where I went as well. Yeah, because you watch this and his performance was so good. You're watching a person having a mental breakdown without it being so obvious and so over the top that it's, you know, for the average person as you're watching this, you're you're going, is this person having a breakdown? I think so, but that hesitation is what made the performance so good. He just had that ability to just go to the edge to make you believe or think without convincing you completely. And as a result, it allowed you to buy into this whole fact that people around him who supposedly are his friends and employers are just allowing this to happen without any thought or ramification. I'll say this. His performance is so layered that each time I have watched the film, I take something different away as to how his conduct was and how deranged he really was through the course of the film. The first time I saw it, I thought he was completely deranged throughout the entire course of the movie. In this viewing... I almost view him as a rational actor because he's making rational decisions even in spite of what is seemingly a disconnect from reality. All of his speeches are still based in a rationale as to why he's mad as hell. Yes, his anger is produced, but he really believes himself, even in a delusional fashion, to be a prophet because he has seen the face of God. And then... While you can make comment as to whether he has or not, and eventually he replaces what he thinks is his illusion of God with Arthur Jensen being his new God, and that obviously changes the movie. But 
the fact that there is ambiguity in where the performance lands and you can watch it all these different ways to me says he did a masterful job because you can have these questions about the movie in perpetuity. The ultimate aspect of his insanity was that he lacked the filters that most of us have. There are times where things happen that I just want to scream into the night. You know, like, why do you see this? Or why do you think this? Or why? Okay, and his insanity was unveiling that, eliminating those filters that say, this is how we comport to a traditional society versus expressing how we feel and the rage we have. And so to that extent, that's that's kind of where his performance was. You could feel his anger and see his disdain for things, but you could also see where his filters were just gone. So let's see if we can go three for three. Who is your most charismatic? William Holden. Okay, we didn't. I love William Holden. This was kind of like uh, between uh, The Towering Inferno and then this film. It was a kind of a renaissance for him. He did a kind of a late 50s kind of resurgence in his career. He always had a great screen presence throughout the 50s and into the 60s. And then he kind of had a tailing off period for a while and then kind of resurrected his career. But there's a reason why he was a big movie star when he was. And it didn't matter what his age was. I think it still was clear. I do love Bill Holden. This is the third movie of his that we've discussed on the show, along with The Bridge on the River Kwai and Sunset Boulevard. And he's definitely enticing throughout this movie because he seems to be the only one that sees through all of the bullshit, even though Howard is the one prophesizing about it. But he's the only one who ever asks the question, is this the best thing that's happening for Howard Beale? Literally, he's the only one who has ever asked that question in the movie. So he becomes the consciousness of the audience. And so I can understand the connection that you'd have as a charismatic character in this movie. And yet, I think, and I'll do one of your patented off-the-radar type moves, and I'll go with Sidney Lumet. I think that he creates a tone that's inviting despite its subject material that even though I saw some criticisms at the time or the contemporary criticisms by people like Pauline Kael that this movie was a bit preachy, that in a modern sense, it doesn't feel that way. And that the delivery and the expertise with which he gets performances out of his actors delivering such great prose And yes, a lot of this was probably on the page. You still have to put it on film. He has a way of inviting us into these very intimate spaces with these people and being the spectator fly on the wall for interesting conversations. And so for the ambiance of what this film is, I think he's the most charismatic. Okay, I understand your points. Let's go to best scene then. I've got down... I just kind of skipped that opening piece because as much as the jokes about him blowing his brains out and then 
him and Max discussing his firing, I'm sure that's a great exposition to as a jumping off point for this movie. But I think the movie really starts when he actually goes on air and says he's going to commit suicide in his last broadcast. So that's my first one. Then I have Max and Diana, which is them kind of dancing around each other, revealing their interest or attraction toward each other at the same time that she's trying to provide reasons to put Howard Beale on the air and let him do his rants. And so there's a obvious dichotomy between the two with what you would say is the old traditional media and the new media, which we're having a lot of in this current conversation in modern times. Next one I have is the Ecumenical Liberation Army. Then the famous, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore, which I haven't seen this movie in a couple of years. And I thought that speech happens a lot sooner into the movie, but that thing happens, I think, at least halfway into the movie. Uh Then Max tells his wife, I specifically highlight that one because we have a specific Oscar moment for somebody in that scene. The Saudis and the CCA deal, just because I, and that will be nominated for best quotes here coming up, that entire monologue. Arthur Jensen, so the Ned Beatty performance. And then finally, the Killing Beale conversation. Did I miss any? No. Okay, so what is the best scene then? I love the whole concept of uh, Beale coming in. He's been out in the rain. He walks in. He's covered. He's dripping in a wet raincoat, sits down, does his monologue, and I'm as mad as hell. It's very well done. But I also think that the the scene with Ned Beatty is so prescient that I have a hard time. I had a hard time choosing between those scenes, but I'll go with the mad as hell scene, I guess, ultimately. I'm going to go with the mad as hell just because I think it's also the most indelible moment to me because it's the number one thing you think about when you see this movie. But to me, it's not just about his rant during the course of that moment. It's his call to action, and then Bill Holden, and I think it's his daughter, opening up the window and seeing everybody screaming out their window. To me, that really separates, okay, we're not just at ratings. We're actually getting people to get off their couch and do something. We're having a true impact. To me, that's where this is. that moment is important, and that's why I think it's the best scene, because... That's something you might talk about on the page, but it's another thing to see that fully realized in an actual on-screen moment. You make several good points, and I guess that's also my most indelible moment. And mine is them at the window seeing everybody yelling, I'm as mad as hell. It's quite literally the, the thing that I was waiting for once we started watching the movie. I'm just like, okay, when does that scene come? Because I forgot in the course of things when it came in. And then when it it's happening, you're like, oh yeah, here it comes. My favorite scene, though, I really love his rant during the Saudi and CCA deal. Because I think that has a lot of prescience on corporate culture. And yes, I love the Arthur Jensen part of it afterwards and his rebuke of that. Because there's a lot of truth even in his evil nature. But I, I 
personally just love him getting on, sitting up there and espousing something that's taking down his own corporate overlords, and that becomes his undoing. For me, my favorite scene is going to be something that you're going to think is kind of innocuous. My favorite scene is the uh, Christensen-Schumacher, Dunaway and Holden, in the restaurant when they first go out for dinner. Mm -hmm. The dialogue and the sparring that's taking place, the sexual sparring that's going on, is so real, believable, and palpable. You can feel it. You can feel the putting just enough of yourself into vulnerability to entice the other person and then pulling back. And you can just see the interplay of the relationship and of the sexual spark in there. Some of the lines and the dialogue is so well done. To me, that's just one of my favorites because it's realistic, but it's idealistic at the same time. And that looks like a good spot to take our second break. We'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, just a quick note that I've been mentioning the new RonnieDuncanStudios.com for a few weeks now, and I've been working on it for a couple of months. It is now finished and ready for everyone to see. You can check out the show notes for every episode of the show so far, as well as the master rankings list of movies we've done so far on the show. That's on the top of the web page. So just click on the Greatest Movie of All Time tab at the top of the site, and you can find everything right there for you. Please go check it out. It took a lot of tedious time trying to redevelop everything and make sure it was all the way we wanted it with our new template. So hope you enjoy, and we appreciate any feedback that you want to give us. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? We do. Uh, We lost Mike Shank. He was an American musician and actor. He was 53. American movie, storytelling, and Hamlet ADD. Cult hero after playing himself in the Sundance-winning documentary American movie, where he was the most trusted crew member making the low-budget horror movie Coven, which he also ended up scoring. Oddly enough, this was actually filmed in Wisconsin, and he was a local resident of Milwaukee up until he passed away. Oh, I was not aware. We also lost Ted White, 96, American stuntman. He uh, was a stuntman in Escape from New York, Roadhouse, Tron, and Wild Wild West. He was an actor in Friday the 13th, the final chapter. Yes, he played Jason Voorhees during that particular installment. And there were a lot of tributes from people that were on that set as to his character and his demeanor. There were a lot of people that just had a lot of connections to him throughout his movie career, but he was, for a while, John Wayne's stunt double, and he did some stand-in work even for Clark Gable. So his stunt career went back very, very far, and obviously at 96, he had a very long and storied career. We also lost Robert Gordon, 75 American rockabilly singer, Part of the band Tough Darts. Did solo work with Bruce Springsteen on the song Fire. That was eventually a hit for the Pointer Sisters. And has a new album coming out November 25th of 2022. So that'll be posthumously. 
Then lastly, we lost a uh, well-respected and well-regarded actor-comedian, Robbie Coltrane, 72, Scottish actor. He was in Blackadder, Harry Potter, Cracker, GoldenEye, and The World is Not Enough. I mean... There wasn't even much of an obituary I could find for him anywhere online because really the obituaries were he's remembered by this famous actor, this famous actor, everybody from Stephen Fry to Hugh Laurie from his work on Blackadder to Pierce Brosnan for his appearance in two different James Bond movies to Daniel Radcliffe for his work in the Harry Potter franchise where he was famously Hagrid to Judy Dench for a... I think made for TV movie that he did with her a couple of years ago. So the outpouring among the acting community has been profuse. And to say he was beloved might be an understatement. He just seemed like a very lovely person who tried to take care of everybody that he was a part of and could make just about anybody laugh. And so I know that he is going to be missed by the Potterheads in the world but he was so much more than just that one franchise. And so it's a marked passing this week for him. I've noticed just how many people have commented about him in general. And, and a lot of people just, he felt he was a very kind, gentle, genuine human being. And so we remember all these here for their performances, their contributions, and the people they were with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. Best lines slash funniest lines. Some of these are a little bit satirical, but most of these are monologues. So I apologize in advance for carrying on, but this is like movie porn for me right now. Thanks for sharing. Howard Beale. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street, and there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do. And there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe, and our food is unfit to eat. And we sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know that things are bad. Worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy. So we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house and slowly the world we are living in is getting smaller. And all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radials and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to riot. I don't want you to write your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being, goddammit. My life has value. So I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I want you to get up right now, sit up, go to your windows, open them, and stick your head out and yell, 
I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Things have got to change, but first you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Then we'll figure out what to do about the depression and the inflation and the oil crisis. But first, get up out of your chairs, open the window, stick your head out, and yell and say it. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Howard Beale. Right now, there's a hole, an entire generation that never knew anything that didn't come out of this tube. This tube is the gospel, the ultimate revelation. This tube can make or break presidents, popes, prime ministers. This tube is the most awesome goddamn propaganda force in the whole godless world. And woe is to us if, if it ever falls into the hands of the wrong people. And that's why woe is us that Edward George Reddy died. Because this company is now in the hands of CCA, the Communications Corporation of America. There's a new chairman of the board, a man called Frank Hackett, sitting in Mr. Ruddy's office on the 20th floor. And when the 12th largest company in the world controls the most goddamn propaganda force in the whole godless world, who knows what shit will be peddled for truth on this network? Diana Christensen, I watched your six o'clock news today. It's straight tabloid. You had a minute and a half of that lady riding a bike naked in Central Park. On the other hand, you had less than a minute of hard national and international news. It was all sex, scandal, brutal crime, sports, children with incurable diseases, and lost puppies. So I don't think I'll listen to any protestations of high standards of journalism when you're right down on the street soliciting audiences like the rest of us. Look, all I'm saying is, if you're going to hustle, at least do it right. Max Schumacher. It's too late, Diana. There's nothing left in you that I can live with. You're one of Howard's humanoids. And if I stay with you, I'll be destroyed. Like Howard Beale was destroyed like Lauren Hobbs was destroyed, like everything you and the institution of television touch is destroyed. You are television incarnate, Diane, indifferent to human suffering, insensitive to joy. All of life is reduced to the common rubble of banality. War, murder, death are all the same to you as bottles of beer. The daily business of life is a corrupt comedy. You even shattered the sensations of time and space into split seconds and instant replays. You are madness, Diana. Virtual madness. And everything you touch dies with you. Well, not me. Not while I can still feel pleasure and pain and love. See, one of the reasons that I enjoyed Bill Holden in this movie and think he did a great performance is that he has a level of tenderness instead of the righteous indignation that you just read it as. There's some caring and affection for this person despite all of the things that you're saying. Because if you just simply read that speech off the page, you would think that it is righteous indignation. Just a thought. Diana Christensen. Look, I sent you all a concept analysis report yesterday. Did any of you read it? Aids stare blankly back at her. Well, in a nutshell, it said, The American people are turning sullen. They've been clobbered on all sides by Vietnam, Watergate, the inflation, the depression. They've turned off, shot up, and they've fucked themselves limp, and nothing helps. 
So this concept analysis report concludes, the American people want somebody to articulate their rage for them. I've been telling you people since I took this job six months ago that I want angry shows. I don't want conventional programming on this network. I want counterculture. I want anti-establishment. I don't want to play butch boss with you people, but when I took over this department, it had the worst programming record in television history. This network hasn't one show in the top 20. This network is an industry joke, and we'd better start putting together one winner for next September. I want a show developed based on the activities of a terrorist group. Joseph Stalin and his merry band of Bolsheviks. I want ideas from you people. This is what you're paid for. And by the way, the next time I send an audience research report around, you'd all better read it or I'll sack the fucking lot of you. Is that clear? Louis Schumacher. Then get out. Go anywhere you want. Go to a hotel. Go live with her. And don't come back. Because after 25 years of building a home and raising a family and all the senseless pain that we have inflicted on each other, I'm damned if I'm going to stand here and have you tell me you're in love with someone else. Because this isn't a convention weekend with your secretary, is it? Or or some bra that you picked up after three belts of booze. This is your great winter romance, isn't it? Your last roar of passion before you settle into the emeritus years. Is that what's left for me? Is that my share? She gets the winter passion and I get the dotage? What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to sit at home knitting and purling while you slink back like some penitent drunk? I'm your wife, damn it. And if you can't work up a wit of passion for me, the least I require is respect and allegiance. I hurt. Don't you understand that? I hurt badly. Howard Beale, laughing to himself. But man, you're never going to get any truth from us. We'll tell you anything you want to hear. We lie like hell. We'll tell you that uh, Kojak always gets the killer, or that nobody ever gets cancer at Archie Bunker's house. And no matter how much trouble the hero is in, don't worry, just look at your watch. At the end of the hour, he's going to win. We'll tell you any shit you want to hear. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there, day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality, and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You eat like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of this sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. Diana Christensen. Well, Max, here we are. Middle-aged man reaffirming his middle-aged manhood and a terrified young woman with a father complex. What sort of script do you think we can make of this? Arthur Jensen. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it. Is that clear? You think you've merely stopped a business deal? That is not the case. The Arabs have taken billions of dollars out of this country, and now they must put it back. It is ebb and flow, tidal gravity. It is ecological balance. 
You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems, one vast and main interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. Petrodollars, electrodollars, multidollars, Reichmarks, rins, rubles, pounds, and shekels. It is the international system of currency which determines the totality of life on this planet. That is the natural order of things today. That is the atomic and subatomic and galactic structure of things today. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature, and you will atone. Am I getting through to you, Mr. Beale? You get up on your little 21-inch screen and howl about America and democracy. There is no America. There is no democracy. There is only IBM and ITT and AT&T and DuPont, Dow, Union Carbide, and Exxon. Those are the nations of the world today. What do you think the Russians talk about in their councils of state? Karl Marx? They get out their linear programming charts, statistical decision theories, minimax solutions, and compute the price-cost probabilities of their transactions and investments, just like we do. We no longer live in a world of nations and ideologies, Mr. Beale. The world is a college of corporations, inexorably determined by the immutable bylaws of business. The world is a business, Mr. Beale. It has been since man crawled out of the slime, and our children will live, Mr. Beale, to see that perfect world in which there's no war or famine, oppression or brutality, one vast and ecumenical holding company for whom all men will work to serve a common profit in which all men will hold a share of stock. All necessities provided, all anxieties tranquilized, all boredom amused. And I have chosen you, Mr. Beale, to preach this evangel. Howard Beale, why me? Because you're on television, dummy. 60 million people watch you every night of the week, Monday through Friday. I have seen the face of God. You just might be right, Mr. Beale. Diana, the time has come to reevaluate our relationship, Max. Max, so I see. Diana, I don't like the way this script of ours has turned out. It's turning into a seedy little drama. Max, you're going to cancel the show? Diana, right. I have one last one. Narrator, this was the story of Howard Beale, the first known instance of a man who was killed because he had lousy ratings. My last. Howard, television is not truth. Television is a goddamn amusement park. All right, so now that we've <laughs> humored ourselves, I suppose we should get to the part of the show everybody else listens to. <laughs> oh, well. This is a chance to feel like an actor. All right, let's uh, go to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy's up first. Do you want to go first or second? I'll go. For the industry... I mean, this is still highly acclaimed. I mean, it's 
It's talked about. It's influenced directors. It's influenced people who are doing screenplays. I think it's influenced a lot of the industry yet. It helped resurrect or was part of the resurrection of Bill Holden's career that lasted into the 80s until his untimely death. So I, I, the fact that there is a certain aspect of the public that has assumed certain parts of this film as being part of the industry itself, I'm going to go with a 4.5 for the industry. But from a public standpoint, no one watches this film, as far as I can tell. I've talked with people in more your generation, and not too many have ever heard of it. And for that matter, there aren't a whole lot of people who've heard of the movie in my generation, because it's just slightly before we would have become more conscious of what was going on in the film industry. So it's I think it's limited to a certain age group of baby boomers. Your mother couldn't remember it. Okay, but that's not a good barometer of... Well, she, for better or worse, is our barometer for establishing what the average person knows, remembers, or sees because she's not the near nerd that we are about these films. I would consider us part of the industry as opposed to the audience anymore. Yes, I, I kind of like that thought, so I hope so. But anyway, but she couldn't remember it. I constantly had to remind her what the film was because she kept confusing it with about three or four other films. So I gave it a two for the public because I think it's lost a lot of its luster. I wish people would go back and watch it. Maybe it would have some impact on how they digest their information and news. So I came up with a 6.5 for the legacy. So we're not very far off. I went with a 5 for industry. I think it's an obvious 5. This script and Chayevsky are widely known as being part of the lexicon of great American scripts, screenplays, screenwriters because of this movie. I think the acting performances are somewhat legendary. The fact that we reproduced a stage version of this starring probably one of our most recognized actors of the modern era. I I think this still has some legs in a certain community of people like ourselves as far as industry people. I think that just about anybody that follows movies and such knows of this movie and it has a lot of tentacles into multiple parts of commentary, criticism, etc. that I, I think consider this a, a clear slam dunk five as far as the industry is concerned. I'll, I'll just challenge you a little bit. I thought about a five. The simple fact is, is that even among the industry, you commented about the fact that there's a certain part of the industry. I don't think this is as broadly interpreted or beloved I just don't find that to be the case. Even people like Ebert, who had some criticisms of it at the time, came around on the film eventually in his great films list, as he did with a lot of movies where it needed some time to breathe. I think that's where the difference lies, is that there were a lot of criticisms of the movie at the time because they could see it for the satire that it I guess wasn't actually trying to be, 
but I don't think that it skews the legacy at all for me, especially when we've given out industry fives for much lesser films, as far as I'm concerned. All right. I guess you've convinced me I'll go back. I had originally thought about a five and I went to 4.5, so I'll go back to a five for the industry, so I'll go with seven. Well, then you'll match me because I had your exact same audience score. I have a two as well. I think this is known among people that are movie fans or film fanatics or film historian types, people that just like good movies. But the average person, if we're really equating it to some of the people that are around us, rural, middle America, kind of average people, it's not a movie that they probably know of very much or have any great fondness or memory of. And a two is a little bit forgiving. So I went with a two because I want this to not necessarily be downsized for its lack of the public attention, because I think this appeals, as you said, to us theater and cinema nerds, but it doesn't necessarily broadly appeal because maybe to them it does feel somewhat preachy. So that's an obvious seven average between the two of us. You didn't need help with the math? No, not on that one. On impact significance, however, I also went with a five for the industry. I mean, I really don't know how you couldn't have at the time. The amount of Oscar nominations, the the amount of relatively good critical acclaim, even though there were some small criticisms. Like I said, Ebert had his issues with the film, even though he still thought it worked. He just wasn't as overly praising as he was when he came back to it like 20 years later. So I don't know if I could hold that against it. And certainly with just its wide appeal, the fact that it's a Sidney Lumet film, the fact that Chayevsky was recognized as one of the great screenwriters as a result, it's a five for the industry. I, I really don't know how much I have to sell that one. As far as the audience, though, at the time, and this is, again, something that carried through. It was the 19th highest grossing movie that year, and it just never garnered the attention of the general public despite its critical reception. The reason Rocky won Best Picture that year is because it was by far, in a way, the highest grossing movie of 1976. Like, it doubled the next closest movie, which is a movie I've never even heard of. This thing made like $23 million. Rocky made like 116. People wanted to go out and see a boxing movie and they didn't necessarily want to be told how television was rotting their brains. And I think to a certain degree, they still don't. So I went with a 2.5 to split the difference and give it a little bit more impact because I'm sure it had a little bit more name recognition at the time and had some fairly well-known actors, particularly in that era. But I don't think it went that much higher than what the audience treats this as right now. So that's a 7.5 for me. I agree with you as far as the industry score. I had a 5 on that. You don't have to do much more than just look at the Academy Award nominations and some of the reviews that were issued. The public, I have a little bit higher number than you. I went with a 3.5 because I think it had a little more legs. This was a fairly popular movie when HBO first started in that 76, 77, 78 time frame. 
I think that even though it only made $23.7 million in gross at the film, I think this is one of the films that first started generating revenue off of pay or subscription services. And so I think it had a little bigger impact than you're giving it at the time. Not a huge impact, but a little bigger than what you're saying. So I went with 3.5 for that. So I'm going to give it an 8.5. Would you like to do the math on that one? Where were you again? 7.5. Oh, and I'm at 8.5? Hmm. Now you can do the math. That's an 8 average between the two of us. Okay. Novelty. 10. I I couldn't think of another film that did this and did it in such a way. It's skewered without it being a total comedy. It's skewered television and society and created almost a counterculture. And I I just couldn't think of a parallel. (sighs) I'm trying to remember here. So give me a, a second to pull up. Uh, our scoring list because I want to check something. Okay. So if it's a 10, as far as the novelty, we've only given 10 so far to six films. Do the Right Thing, Sunset Boulevard, 12 Angry Men, Psycho, Rashomon, and Some Like It Hot. Okay. And while there were criticisms of TV and of journalism, they didn't come like this. Remember, this is the same year as All the President's Men, a much more successful film at the time. That is held as the bastion of journalism in movies. I don't think there are two more diametrically opposing movies than (laughs) Network and All the President's Men for what they were trying to accomplish. So I was originally going to go a 9.5, which would put it in some pretty esteemed company with Taxi Driver, North by Northwest, On the Waterfront, High Noon, but I'll match your 10. Okay. We don't need any math on that one, do we? Only to give the average. Okay. Which is a 10. Good. Makes it simple. Classicness. Now, before we start this one, and I normally let you start the category, we've only ever given one 10. Now, I've handed out several 10s in the course of the show. You have only given out two 10s all time on classicness. Now, only one movie has gotten a full 10. Let me make the case here. Is there a movie that is aged better than this? Few. That's my case. And I'm not going to give it a 10, and I'm going to tell you why. All of the roles of African Americans in this film were militant criminals. (laughs) There's no positive African American character in this film. We have a communist, and we have a terrorist. And that's the scene. It's, It's so almost stereotyped to make them the militants in this film. And I understand it's 1976, but I would have thought at least at that point in time, one of the terrorists would have been white. All right. Let's just take it from this standpoint. First off, 
is there any positive character in this movie? You can't complain about the negative characters when I don't think there's a positive character in the entire movie. Here's the second part of it. Yes, the black people were militants, but they were given an opportunity to sell their point of view in a way that they weren't in any other network, and they were profiting in the same way as everybody else. So this was an actually equalizing film despite the stereotypes of the 70s. I just have a problem with the stereotypes. I can see that. So what did you go with? I went with a nine. All I can say is, is Chayefsky was channeling Nostradamus for the entirety of writing this script. And even despite its flaws, I just, I don't know how as prescient and prophetic as it was, it's somehow not a 10, but it's a 9.5. All right. Rewatchability. Great writing and delivery of such poignant monologues is never going to bore me. It is literally film nerd porn. I loved being able to deliver those speeches because it is just beautiful prose. And I am engrossed in this movie almost immediately. It's not a movie I can watch on loop in the same way that I can All the President's Men. That one gives me a certain thrill that this does not. But to revisit this once a year... And just listen back to it and have the same comment every time that I pause it or turn it off or have to go do something else. Holy shit, this is a good movie. So while it's not among my favorites, it's going to be up there. So I'll give it an 8. I also gave it an 8 because this is a movie that I think is worth watching repeatedly to refocus what you're seeing on television in general and where society is. And it's a film that if you have an opportunity to have an influence on people in general, this is something you should be recommending because I think it makes anyone who sees it think. Agreed. So we had an unfortunate gap in our audience scores 81% for Google users and 93% for Rotten Tomato users for an 8.7 overall. So to repeat the categories, we had a 7 for Legacy, an 8 for Impact Significance, 10 for Novelty, 9.5 for Classicness, 8 for Rewatchability, 8.7 for Audience Score for a 51.2, and that would currently place it between the good, the bad, and the ugly and Ocean's Eleven on the list. Hmm. Okay. That doesn't feel right. It doesn't, but I I can tell you where the problem rests. It's the fact that the general public has not allowed this film to age well. Well, theoretically, if you had given the extra half point, it would have moved it like seven spots up the list and been between Goodwill Hunting and Psycho. Okay, so... <laughs> Okay, I, I, I understand we're talking about very fine points here, but <sighs> it is what it is. Remaining questions. What does the next day's show look like after Beale is killed? <laughs> I don't know. You can do one of two things, which is what a normal network would do is not have the show the next night to allow morning. Or the other is is repeatingly show the 
the assassination again and start talking about how they're going to capture the criminals. Yeah, that's one way of doing it. I would have thought that they would have gone to like a memorial or like a tribute service. Who wants to sit through that? This is all about sensationalism. I don't know. Every American that turned in for three weeks to hear every piece of news coverage on the Queen? I still don't understand that. I definitely don't. She wasn't your Queen. I can't understand the Englanders who sat through that. Yeah. She was the head of state. It's like the head of people who give parties for your government passed away. I remember being on a cruise ship with a guy who was a uh, photographer for the Canadian press. And he was telling me that he did a book. And in the book, he had a photo that he had taken from a reviewing stand of Queen Elizabeth picking her nose. And right before it went to press, he decided to take it out because, yes, he thought too much of the Queen to allow that. And he's a Canadian. Well, they are technically a protectorate of the British government, but... Yeah. Although I think at this point, the Canadian military might be more fearsome, other than their politeness. Yeah. Did they give you a donut before shooting you? Do you mind if we invade you? All right. Second question. When does Mr. Jensen figure out that the UBS team conspired to kill Bill? There are way too many people in that room for that not to get out at some point. I don't know. I don't know how, how to answer that because, yeah, maybe he figures it out. Maybe he never does. I don't know. I, I don't have an answer for that one. I thought about it for a long time and I'm like, I don't know. I just can only imagine if he did that to Howard Beale holding up a deal when he was immutable and inflexible on taking him off the air as his profit, his communication tool to the masses. How can you quantify his potential anger when that's taken away? Well, the other aspect is, is that you can look at is that he understood that if he says too much or does too much, then he brings down the wrath of law enforcement on his own company. Maybe. I mean, obviously there would be an investigation, but it doesn't necessarily tie back to him. Yeah, but it would tie back to UBS and potentially destroy the network, which is his asset. I suppose. I don't know. If he's operating as his own nation state, I'm sure he doesn't need to contact the police in order to be able to handle things. Well, you can say what you want. It's not quite so clean. Law enforcement does exist. All right. The only other thing that's ever confused me about this movie is the inclusion of the Max and Diana relationship in this movie. Now, I assume it's meant to be somewhat allegorical that especially the way that they're talking, they're supposed to represent their respective generations and their cultural attitudes towards television which is why everything about their relationship is always talked about through the lens of scripted or that they keep talking about this is how the script goes in our relationship or every time it's mentioned. But what is your read on the inclusion of this relationship in the movie? 
It's an apologue or allegory. Olden represents the old classic stoic society, the old television, providing things in a clear, concise, non-emotional, non-sensational manner. But yet, that stoic entity is enticed by the salacious entertainment aspect that's represented by Faye Dunaway. And so he gives in to that, and he allows it to happen and to permeate his life. He's willing to give up everything that he knows, everything that he believes, everything that he has held close and dear because of the excitement associated with this new, enticing, salacious aspect. And as he starts having it incorporated and becomes part of his life, he becomes disenchanted with it and has to divorce himself from it. This relationship is ultimately the description of modern television overlaying the more traditional television and a certain portion of society that believes in more fundamental relationships, beliefs, concepts that are within television. I suppose I can see it, and I may have seen it already, but you had said before we were recording that you had a a take on this, so setting you up there. All right, so final thoughts for the week. I really don't have any. It's it's fall, and uh, I'm looking forward to the next several weeks as far as movies. Um, I have not seen next week's movie uh, since it was originally available, and um, I'm kind of looking forward to it again. I have a lot of memories about the quality of the film, so I'm looking forward to it. And the week after that, I'm looking forward to that film as well, which again... Your mother couldn't remember seeing, and yet I reminded her that we watched it together. Which one? Next week's film or the film after that? The film after that, which is From Here to Eternity. No, that's not the film. Oh, what is the next film? From Here to Eternity is not for probably six weeks at least. The next film after that is The Great Escape. Oh, okay. My mistake. I thought six weeks. We're doing it for Veterans Day, and that's November 11th. No, we're doing The Great Escape for Veterans Day. Oh, my mistake. We're doing From Here to Eternity for Pearl Harbor Day. Ah, okay. Well, anyway, a couple weeks we're doing The Great Escape, which is one of my favorite films. I just loved it when it was out. I remember sitting and watching it with my dad. Back in uh, 1976, two of the top 20 shows every week was the ABC Saturday Night Movie, and the NBC Sunday Night Movie, which is when most of these were shown. So I've been trying to do some recommendations for the past couple of weeks on stuff that I've been watching and paying attention to other than this. And right now I'm just kind of playing catch up on a lot of shows that I've done. I don't have anything great to necessarily recommend. I did recently see See How They Run which I thought was all right. I thought it fell apart a little bit towards the end, and particularly a storyline that they chose to do that kind of made the the movie stop a little bit. But 
I'm looking forward to some of the movies that are going to be coming out very soon. I know we have the Fablemans coming out in a couple of weeks. We have a couple of other Oscar favorites that are going to be coming up because it is award season, which you and I always look forward to, and they're going to have our preview. And I don't have a great thing off the tip of my tongue right now to recommend. I'm sure I'm going to try and start going to the theater just about at least once a week to try and see something, but I just don't have anything at the moment to really provide. I know it's been out for a while, but I just finished Under the Banner of Heaven. Yeah, the uh, Andrew Garfield show. Yes. Very good and very thought-provoking. I would recommend it. I thought Andrew Garfield did a very good job in portraying the characters involved. I thought it was well worth sitting and watching the six episodes, seven episodes. I think it's seven, yeah. It's on Hulu because it was an FX program. But it lost a bit of steam the further on it went for me. It became less about the true crime aspect, which I can follow a lot better, and more about the intention behind the crime. And so it it just lost a little bit of steam the crazier it got. Well, it talks a lot about the history of uh, the Mormon church. Having gone out and spent some time in Salt Lake City not too long ago for um, work and being in some museums, they talked about the Mormon Wars, and uh, it, it made it more believable and realistic to me, having read some of the stuff and then seeing how it was portrayed in the film or in the show. So I thought it was a very good project and worth watching. That's going to do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be discussing the last film in our journalism month with the Best Picture winner from 2015, Spotlight, written and directed by Tom McCarthy, co-written by Josh Singer, starring Michael Keaton, Liev Schreiber, Rachel McAdams, Mark Ruffalo, John Slattery, and Stanley Tucci. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnyduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.